Well, let's get started. I'm going to say something today that's going to shock you. It's going to perplex you. Is that Jesus does not appear starting in Matthew on. Okay, now I know you're taken aback by that. You're like, oh, what? No. See, he's all the way through. And that's what we've been talking about in this Emmaus Road series. Is where do we see the pictures and images of Jesus? And we've looked at several different things. And so to recap very quickly, we talked about basically the overview of the entire Bible, especially the Old Testament. It's 66 books written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year span of time, and yet it's got a common theme, a principle weaved all the way throughout it, and that is the redemption of mankind. The Old Testament is about a nation, which is Israel, which is all foreshadowing the coming of the Messiah. Israel was the way that God brought the Messiah through. And it's something that we don't, we don't really take at heart because we're on the other side of the aisle. We have always been after the Messiah has come. We don't understand what it was they went through. But when we start looking at Jesus in the Old Testament, it's not necessarily obvious for us. We don't necessarily see it the way that they would see it, and understanding some of the languages that they used and things like that back then. And we talked about it, how one, he's on every page, but it's not obvious because God put it out there as sort of a mosaic, which is just a bunch of individual little dots and what that create a brighter picture. I've showed these pictures the last couple of weeks, you know, of, of, of what looks like nothing, but when you shine the light on it, it creates this art. Same with that one. And what's important to understand is every piece, while it looks like it's just random and abstract, was deliberately put there by the designer. Every piece. Every, and that first picture, every pop can, every roll of toilet paper, every diaper, everything was put there deliberately by the designer. But without the light illuminating it, it doesn't look like anything. And it is the same thing with the Bible. It is the same thing when we look at the Old Testament trying to find Jesus. And that's exactly what he did at the end of Luke when he's talking to these two guys on what they call the Emmaus Road, which is just the road that they were traveling to get to Emmaus, is he illuminates himself in the Old Testament after he comes back, after the resurrection, and shows himself on every page. And if it's important enough for Jesus to do it, maybe we should do it too. And that's why we're doing this. And so last week we talked about several things. And one of the things that we talked about was his offices. The prophet, priest, and king. Those were used in the Old Testament. And they had specific principles and specific jobs and roles and everything. But every bit of that was foreshadowed to Christ. And which Christ fulfilled every one of those offices. He was that. And then of course the last thing that we walked through was the idea of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That did not just happen in the New Testament. That idea was laid out over time and it continued to build through what we call progressive revelation. And, 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 and understanding that grows with time. And, and understanding what the words are in the text and all of that kind of stuff, putting it together. Everything in the Bible is speaking of Christ. And so today we're going to look at a few different things, continuing in on this idea. And something we've got to talk about are types. They're called types and shadows. It comes from the, the ideas, typology is a method of biblical interpretation by which a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament corresponds to another one in the New Testament within the framework of salvation history. This is something that you have to have the two together in order to fully comprehend. God uses these Old Testament type in some redemptive activity for His people and these foreshadowing that He did. And all of these prefigure Christ and they're fulfilled 
in Christ. Again, while they're doing these and they're acting these out, whether it be the sacrifices, whether it be the feast, whether it be any of those things, they may not necessarily realize what they're doing. But because of hindsight, we can look at how Christ fulfilled that and goes all the way back and points to this. And so what God partially accomplished through the type corresponds with what He fully accomplished with Christ. The fulfillment is much superior to the type. So the type is nothing more than a shadow of Christ, but there's two things. There's the type, and then there's the anti-type, okay? Big words, kind of weird. The type is the shadow of Christ. The anti-type is the substance of Christ in the fulfillment, if that makes any sense. And we'll look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and starting in verse 1. And we've read this before, but we're going to read it again. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the Israelites, how they went through the sea, that they had the cloud by day, the fire by night that God provided so that they could see and stay warm and all of that, and of course all the food, and then that they hit the rock and water came from it all of that that's what it's talking about it's going back to the old testament verse five but with most of them god was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness now these things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they were also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in the day 23,000 fell nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer in verse 11 now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of this ages have come. This is not some abstract idea that I'm just throwing at you. This is set up, this is spoken by Paul. That all of these things were done that happened to them, and it was written down for our benefit as examples to us so we could see the things that Christ was doing and how he fulfills all of these. And so you see this in several different places. Just quickly looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. What does this tell us? That Adam was a shadow, a type of Christ. It was fulfilled in Christ. Everybody died in Adam, but everybody lives in Christ. You see how that works? Another one, Matthew 24 and 37. As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. This tells us something that when the Son of Man, being God, is coming, then we can look back to the days of Noah, starting in Genesis 6, and see what were they like to give us kind of a precursor of what's going to happen. It's this as and so, the type and anti-type. One more, Matthew 12 and verse 40 says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you think Jonah had any idea when he's sitting in the belly of the whale, if you will? We don't know if it was a whale, it just says great fish. But you think he's in like, boy, I'm glad I'm doing this because Jesus is going to do the same kind of thing and I'm just, I'm just prefiguring this. This is all I'm doing. No, of course not. He's like, get me out of here. They didn't know, but again, Jesus is clarifying this and say, this happened to point to me. All of this was done to point to me. And that's what we got to understand. These are in here, and very many times they are specifically spelled out in the New Testament 
pointing back to the Old Testament. And you see that whole language used. As in, as was, as the, so in Christ, so was Christ, so as Christ. Things like that. You've got to look for those things to pick up on them. We take for granted, again, that we understand all of this stuff. And we read way too quickly as we read the Scriptures. We talked about how the Passover lamb was a shadow of Christ last week. That's why I'm not going into all of that today. We talked about it last week. The whole Passover idea. They had no idea what was going on then, but it perfectly was fulfilled by Christ. And so all of these things are types and shadows. And some of the requirements of the Mosaic Law are an example of that thing too. So flip over to Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 8. And I've got it up on the screen, just in case you didn't bring a Bible. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grow with the increase that is from God. Now, he's specifically telling us things in the Mosaic law that were shadows of Christ. It was the food and the drink that they had. In the Mosaic law, they had very strict dietary laws of what they could eat and couldn't eat. Of course, the festivals were shadows. The new moon that they would, they would again, celebrate and how they would do all of that was a shadow. And of course, the Sabbath was a shadow. All of these pointed to Christ. These were the shadows, but when you get to the end of the shadow, you find the substance that is Christ. He's specifically saying, don't get hung up in the shadows. Don't worship the shadows. Worship the one that the shadows are coming from. They were confused. They were, they were trying to mix new covenant and old covenant principles together, saying that we have to do this. We have, you don't have to do anything. There's nothing wrong with doing them, but it doesn't make you closer to God. Nothing you can do makes you closer to God except one thing, and that's surrendering your life to Him. That's it. So that's what he's doing. He's explaining all of this. But what about the law as a whole in the sacrificial system? How does that shadow Christ or prefigure Christ? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then... Would they not have ceased to be offered? 
For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. We read that verse last week. But we didn't read verse 1. We're talking about having a shadow of good things to come. It's not the image. It's the shadow of the image. It's the shadow of the new covenant that's coming. That you don't have to do this because it specifically says that look, uh, the, the blood and bulls and goats can't do this. It was a reminder of your sin all the time. Why? Because they had to sacrifice for sin. And there's a dozen different ways that they had to do it. But all of it is leading up to the new covenant, which has been one sacrifice. The perfect offerer and the perfect offering. That is Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Well, let's look at one more. At, in Numbers 21, you find this story, this passage about the fiery serpent. Now, I talked about this a year ago, a little bit, if you were here. Some of you weren't here. But this fiery serpent thing that goes on in Numbers 21, and we're going to read from verse 4, and it says, And then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way there. This is after they've gotten from Egypt and all of that. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's referring to manna. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now what a weird passage that is what on earth does that have to do with anything and here's the thing it gives no explanation why you never see this mentioned again in the old testament except for one place where king hezekiah had to destroy it because they were worshiping it other than that it, do, it doesn't give any explanation god just said to do it moses did it the people followed through with what they were supposed to do and they didn't die when they looked at it but what does that have to do with anything well you see it in john three fourteen. jesus is talking to nicodemus he says as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up what you see is the type an anti-type again. You see this laid out. And it's a strange symbol, but we got to understand what this brass serpent was. When you look at this and you study this throughout, you see that brass always means judged or judgment, or it's, it's a symbolic use of that metal has to do with judgment. Serpent is pretty obvious. It means sin, right? You see it at the very beginning with, with the serpent that comes in Genesis 3. Jesus is exemplified by this brass serpent because scripture says that he was made sin for us and that sin was judged on the cross a prefigured christ the only way you're ever going to know this is the words of jesus now we've talked about how intricate this bible is that this thing is incredible and we take for granted how awesome it is that it is divinely put together by somebody who is outside of time because there's no way they can look from beginning to end to see all the things that have been fulfilled in Christ with these prophecies. But he was made sin for us, which we know. But what does that have to do with that brass serpent? We'd have never put that together. Not a chance. 
Neither would they. And these are the things that Jesus goes back during the Emmaus Road and goes and talks about them and, and tells these guys, this was me, this was me, this pointed to me. It's incredible when we look at this. All right, one more that I'm going to go through real quickly. I said the last one was the last one, but it's not. But when we look at the story of Abraham and Isaac, you see Abraham is a type of God, as in a type of father. Isaac is a type of Christ, as the son. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, but I've got them up so you can see them. And so how was Isaac a type of Christ? How did Isaac prefigure Christ? Well, let's look at this. Both Isaac and Christ were children of promise, right? Isaac was promised to Abraham and Sarah, even though at first they didn't necessarily believe. He was promised to them, and I've got the Scripture verses up there. The birth of both was pre-announced. This was coming. It's going to happen. Both were named before their birth. Both Isaac, they told him to name him this, and Jesus, they told, him to, or told Mary to name Jesus this. Now, both of their births were contrary to nature in the fact that Sarah was barren, could not have kids, she was old, and Mary, of course, was a virgin. And I don't know if you ever sat through an eighth grade sexual education class, but virgins don't get pregnant. That's just not how it works. And so you've, you've got two of those things that are combined together. But another one is that they were both called an only son. Both of them were. Isaac was the only son, even though he had a brother, Ishmael. He was still called an only son because he was the son of the promise. Both were mocked and persecuted by their own kindred. We know the story on that. Neither Isaac nor Christ had broken the law that they should be offered up. Neither one of them deserved any kind of judgment because neither one of them had broken the law. Isaac carried the wood on which he was to die, and so Christ also carried his own cross. Isaac went willingly to the altar as Christ went willingly to the cross. They weren't forced there. Isaac knew what was going on. He wasn't surprised when he got up there. He was willing to do it. Both apparently were given up or forsaken by his father. Didn't bother either one. And both rose from the place of death in a resurrection type thing. In both of these cases, God interposed these ideas. Now, Without looking at them side by side, comparing their nature, comparing their attributes, you necessarily wouldn't pick up on that. But it's incredible when you lay these things out in a chart like that. When you start putting them together, it's like, man, this thing is so supernatural. It's incredible how strong and, and, and our Bible is. It's incredible. And so when we look at these types of shadows, you're going to see more of these as we go because we are going to go through each and every book of the Old Testament, um, not necessarily one by one, but we are going to look at them and you'll see more of these as we do that. But to give you an idea of this concept, this type of shadow, because all we're really doing is laying a foundation to get to the really cool stuff later on. And so some of this may seem mundane and some of it may be repetitive for a lot of you. Some of this you maybe never heard before. But the thing we need to understand and to keep in the back of your mind, Jesus is on every page. This is a supernatural book. So there's something else that we're going to talk about today. They're called theophanies and Christophanies. Remember when I told you that all these theological people come up with big fancy words to come up, to just to make you confused, I think, to keep your average man out from understanding anything in the Bible? Well, welcome to theophanies and Christophanies. What that is, a theophany is a visual manifestation of God to human beings. Any theophany that involved Christ is called a Christophany. That's all it is. It's the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in human form. These aren't visions, or they're not some metaphorical uh, usage here. This is an actual appearance of God in the form 
of a human being. And any time in the Old Testament that Christ appeared, it was in his pre-incarnate state. And I would say this, and this is my conjecture here, is that every time you see a physical appearance of God in some aspect, that it is truly a Christophany and not a theophany, that you are seeing Christ uh, in this. So Christophanies reveal information to man about God. It's about his nature and his works. Uh, you saw it with the whole prophet, priest, and king things, because every time, especially a prophet was called, there was an appearance of God. And it also points to how he dealt with man. And so they set the stage for the actual bodily appearance that happens in, in, in the beginning of the New Testament where Christ comes in as a human being. That's called the incarnation, where he's actually here as a human. He's here doing his work. And so a couple of these different things that we're going to look at is, first of all, the angel of the Lord. You see this in several different places in the Old Testament. And the most prominent um, Christophany is this angel of the Lord. Because it may be called the messenger of the Lord or the angel of Jehovah, but every time it seems to be referring to Christ. Now, not every Christophany that happens invokes this angel, but every time the angel of the Lord is mentioned, it is referring to Christ. And you don't necessarily pick up on that immediately. You've got to read slower. You've got to add other parts to it. And so there's 56 different examples in the Old Testament about this angel of the Lord. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, with Sarah and Hagar. We talked about her just a little bit. Sarah did not have enough faith. This was the wife of Abraham. God said, you're going to have a child. She said, you're nuts. What are you talking about? That's not possible. And so God made this promise, and she didn't have enough faith that God would actually do what he said he would do, that he would open his womb. So what does she do? She tells Abram to go and be with Hagar, who was Sarah's servant. And this was a very common practice back then. This isn't, it would be very taboo today. But in that culture, it was very common because they were bringing forth children, and that was important, especially the line of the man underneath of uh, a Hebrew lineage. And so Abram and Hagar conceive, and of course, afterwards, Sarah's not real happy about it. She's pretty upset, you know, maybe should have thought this through a little bit. And so it says that she dealt harshly with Hagar. What that means, we don't know, but it wasn't good. And so Hagar, Hagar takes off as a result of this. And in Genesis 16, as we're going to pick this up, in verse 9, and you're going to see this angel of the Lord person just appear. It says, in verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourselves under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're with child. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. We know that now, in case you didn't know, you're referring to Hagar because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Immediately, you don't necessarily pick up on this angel of the Lord. Is this God? Is this not God? Whatever. But at the end, in verse 13, she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. This is in the context of who was speaking to her, the angel of the Lord. And then she tells us who that is. That is God. It's, 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 it's the Lord. This is a physical appearance of the angel of the Lord, whatever that happened to look like. But this is God. So that's one. How about with Abraham and Isaac? We just talked about that a little bit as well. In Genesis 22 and verse 11, this is when they're getting ready to go up and, and, and God says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. 
And we don't get that. It doesn't make a lot of sense until you see how it prefigures Christ. And, of course, God intervenes. And in verse 11, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. No angel would, would say this, that you withheld them from me, not withheld them with me. This was a calling of God. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for the burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord said to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all nations shall be, of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Again, what do we see? We see the angel of the Lord. And we would, could quickly, mistakenly think that this is just a typical angel, an angel's a messenger. It's possible. But later on, it clears it up that this truly is God. And one more. In, in the story of Moses, when Moses is getting called by God, that he uh, sees the burning bush, right? We know that. We've seen it on all the, the Ten Commandment movies and all the other things, the Bible on, on, on History Channel, all of that. In Exodus 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see the great sight why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Again, you see it. It says the Lord is in the bush. You see these two things side by side. We don't always pick up on that. A lot of people have conjectured that maybe this was just an angel and just a messenger. And that's possible, but yet when we read everything in context, it clears it up. Remember, the Bible interprets the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. Your opinion of it, my opinion of it, doesn't matter. This thing is a supernatural book. And so, some of the Christophanies that happen um, in which God is manifested as that seems to be the angel of the Lord, but he's not expressly identified right away. And so, in the, one of them is where the man who wrestles Jacob is in Genesis 32. And again, we probably know this story. But Genesis 32 and verse 24 says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Doesn't tell us much else, right? Just says a man. And so, but when he's all done and everything's over, then it gives a specific name. In verse 30, it says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So the name of this, this pineal that he gives is the face of God. And Jesus, or Jacob doesn't specifically refer to the man as God here. But you kind of say, I have seen God face to face. So you can kind of make that connection, but it's still a little murky. But in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 2, it tells us exactly who this angel was. The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb and in his strength... He struggled with God, 
And this is where it changes his name to Israel because he was one that struggled with God. Jacob became Israel. Yet he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorable name. It's connecting the dots between the angel and the man. He's saying you wrestled with the angel who was God. It's explaining all of this. You guys kind of see how all of this works. You can see this in the Bible. When you compare these two passages together, there's no doubt who this angel of the Lord is. It is God. It doesn't necessarily refer to Christ, and we'll explain that in greater detail as we go. But the bottom line is this, is we need to know that this book is supernatural. It is beyond anything. Man could not have put this together. This thing was written by such a long time span by 40 different people. It's not one book, it's 66 books. That doesn't just happen. How do they meld these ideas together? How do they make this thing happen like this? It's not possible. One more thing I want to look at real quick. It's the concept of the Word of the Lord. In John 1 and verse 1, we see, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Who is he talking about? Talking about Jesus. We know this. Why? Because in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he, we beheld His glory. And the glory is the, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know this is talking about Jesus. The word idea that John uses here, though, is not just a play on words. This is a title of a person. And if you read the whole chapter, you'll have no question in your mind whatsoever that this is talking about Jesus. The question we have to ask is, is this Word of the Lord title that is given to him, a name of God, is this a New Testament idea? Did John just pull this out of some abstract concept and put this in here? The answer, of course, is no. You see, in Genesis 15, and we'll read this slow, starting in verse 1. This is referring to Abraham, or Abram at this point. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Your exceedingly great reward. Now let's stop there. The word of the Lord came, and he's saying, the word, if it's my words, my words aren't saying anything. I'm saying my words. You see how this works? And he says, it takes on this personal pronoun. I am your shield. Verse 2, but Abraham said, or Abram, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside. Look now toward heaven and count to the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Over and over again, the word came. And you see all these personal pronouns. And Abram refers to the word as Lord God. He, the word, took him outside. It's not a New Testament concept. The word of the Lord came to him. We look at that as just this voice out of heaven. That's not what it's saying. We quickly read through this and we overlook it. This is a pre-incarnate visit from the word who, according to John 1, is Jesus Christ. And this isn't some metaphor. But let's look at it one more. In Jeremiah 1, starting in verse 1, you're going to see this again. In the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were when 
Anathoth, and the land of Benjamin. I wish they'd come up with easier names than these. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you should go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord." Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and calling the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and destroy and to throw down and to build and to plant. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. And the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it's facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come to each one, set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against the concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I made you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land against the kings of judah against the princes against the priests and against the people of the land they will fight against you but they shall not prevail against you for i am with you says the lord to deliver you i mean how do you we miss this now not talking about the context of everything that's going on or or what what they're dealing with because that's kind of irrelevant for what we're doing today but the word of the lord came And the part that's so significant to me is in verse 9 when he says, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That doesn't happen unless he's standing there. Right? I can't touch your mouth unless I'm standing next to you. And it says he, and the Lord, and the Lord, I will, I, the Lord. I mean, it's all there, and we assume that this is just some metaphor or something for Jesus, which it, in a way it is, but it's more of a title. This goes all the way back to the opening book of the Bible. Every time that a prophet was called by God, there was a physical appearance of God. You see this. It's Jesus all the way throughout. Why do we care about this? Why does this matter? Because I want you to see the intricacies of this Bible, because there are a lot of promises in this Bible to us. And this should build your faith. It should absolutely make you walk on cloud nine to think that this Bible wasn't just written by man. That this thing was ordained and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And how awesome a God we serve. That if He can make all of this happen, then any of those promises that are in there belong to us. They're yes and amen. That we receive them, that we believe them, that we have them. Because God gave them to us. 
Again, this is, obviously this is not surface level stuff we're going through. We're going into a lot of deep stuff, and I understand that. And I don't want to lose anybody. I don't want you to ever feel like you're getting a drink of water from a fire hose. I know what that's like. I've sat in those sessions. It's like, okay, uh, I'm going to go listen to this 12 more times to kind of understand it. There's a guy named Ravi Zacharias. I mean, every time I listen to him, I've got to listen to him about a dozen times. He's so smart, it's ridiculous. He uses big words I don't know how to spell. You know, and, and so we're not trying to do that, but we've got to believe. We've got to have faith in this book. And it's just because it's so intricately designed that when you study this out, that the stuff on faith, the stuff on the promises of God, the stuff that Jesus said he would do should come easy because all of this stuff that was promised before has already happened. We can see that pattern going out. We serve a big God, amen? He's good. He's very good. 